listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to read verses 11 through the end of chapter 5, into chapter 6, through chapter 6, verse 3. Even though our English Bibles have these chapter and verse designations, sometimes they're not exactly the best divisions. They weren't part of the inspired text. They're just helpful references. I think this is one instance where maybe it's not the best break. So we're going to read through these passages, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to dig into this text. I think you should have a copy of your own Bible on your lap. We're going to read a lot of Scripture today. The Scriptures that are not in Hebrews, we're going to shoot up on the screen for people that are maybe investigating Christianity or new to the faith. But I think you should have a copy of God's Word in front of you. I think it'll help you. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the one in the chair back or seat in front of you. And you can keep that Bible if you don't own a Bible. Let me read Hebrews 5, starting in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this, verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for waking us up. Lord, I pray that as we work through this text, as we seek to understand it and apply it to our lives, that you would give us illumination by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be like a mighty rushing wind in this place today. Make us more like Jesus for those of us that are trusting in him and for those that are here today that do not yet know you. I pray, God, in your kindness that you would give them a new heart so that they can believe and trust in Jesus and be reconciled to you. Lord, do this all for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, uh, this text, if you haven't noticed, uh, we've been working our way through, by the way, if you're visiting for the first time today on Mother's Day. It's a, a, a book that we're working through Hebrews. It's a New Testament letter. It's a wonderful book that I think is one of the highest points of the New Testament. It's the book that I think is the clearest explanation of who Christ is and all that he's done. And the context of Hebrews is that 
the, the early Christians in Rome in the first century, primarily Jewish, ethnic Jewish Christians, that's why the book is called Hebrews, because it's written to these Hebrew Christians, they were tempted because of social persecution to maybe go back to being Jews, being, being people that were, were living uh, by the Old Testament, by the Old Covenant, because that was socially acceptable. In the Roman Empire, the Roman uh, citizens accepted Judaism, but they didn't really accept Christianity. And in the coming decades, Christianity would be persecuted in very severe ways in the Roman Empire. And so we're at the beginning of that. And the writer, the preacher of Hebrews is encouraging these people. He's basically, the whole point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything that's come before. And everything, in fact, that came before is pointing to Jesus. And we've just finished this explanation a couple weeks ago on the the priesthood. And we're going to get back into that in chapter 7, 8, and 9. But here is a kind of pause in the, the main line or the main point of Hebrews about how Jesus is better to hold on to Jesus, to persevere in Jesus. And it is really a bit of a scold. The writer of Hebrews is scolding the people for their spiritual infancy. The fact that they have stayed in this state of spiritual infancy for really since the beginning of the time, since they became Christians. So he's, he's scolding them for this. Happy Mother's Day. This reminds me of a time, and by the way, this is just a value we have here. We don't necessarily hold ourselves to this as a law, but we think it's probably a good thing to do to just preach through the Bible. Um, it reminds me of the time this morning I was praying with Tyler and Robert and before the service. We were thinking about the service, and I was kind of lamenting, guys, this is a scold. What am I going to do with this text this Mother's Day? And they reminded me about the time years ago when we were going through Romans and we were in Romans chapter 1 and the text was the wrath of God against sins. In particular, this Sunday we were thinking about homosexuality and it was a child dedication Sunday. So whatever happens today, it can't be any worse than that. So what are we to make of this text? Here's, here's what I want us to do. I'm going to to, to help us understand and apply this text, I have a, a, a three questions that, that I want to ask and answer. First, what is the point of this passage? I think that's going to be pretty straightforward. And then secondly, what is spiritual maturity? I think, in fact, that is, in a sense, the, the point of the passage is spiritual maturity. What, what is it? And then how do we grow in spiritual maturity? But before we start to work through that and look at the text again, just very briefly, because I think the point of the text is actually rather straightforward. So in a sense, today is really heavy on application, taking the simple, clear point of the passage and then applying it to our lives. But I want to put a thought in your mind, and I want to maybe teach you a Latin phrase that I think is really important, that I, I want you to know. And it's a historic phrase that Christians have been using for centuries. And it's this phrase, Coram Deo. Coram, meaning face, Deo, God. Living before the face of God. Coram, C-O-R-A-M. Deo, D-E-O. Living before the face of God. And I want to put this thought in your mind that the most important thing that any of us can do in our lives is to live before God, to live Godward lives, to make Him and pleasing Him and serving Him, that our relationship, our discipleship, our maturity, our growth, our transformation, if you're a Christian, your transformation, 
the, the process of you being conformed into the image of Christ is the most important mission. It's your, your greatest obligation, and it's the most important thing about you. Not so that it can dead end on you and you can just have a, a kind of personal, joyful, satisfying relationship with the Lord, as wonderful as that is, but so that through your life, God might use you to shine His glory to others that need to know the Lord. And so I think this text, in the sense of a scold, points us to the essence of the Christian life, that we are to live before the face of God. And if you're not yet a believer here today, I'm glad you're here today, even though this text seems kind of obscure and a little bit like a scold, because it, it points us in this direction that this is the most important thing about you as a human, that you were created for something more than just 80 or 90 years of enjoyment or retirement or earthly satisfaction, but you are a creature and you have a creator and God made you for a purpose. And I hope that you see that today. So let's look at this. First question, what's the point of the passage? Well, I think it's, it's really quite straightforward. Verse 11, he says, about this we have much to say. He's talking, he's referring to what he's just talked about, which is the priesthood. He's just introduced this idea of the priesthood of Jesus, which we dwelled on a couple weeks ago. And I appreciate the fact that he says it's hard to explain. That kind of gives me a little bit of heart sometimes when I feel like I'm bumbling around in the middle of a sermon. It's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. And then he goes into a scold here, and he's going to pick back up again this explanation of the priesthood of Jesus in chapter 7 and 8. But now he says in verse 12, he says, listen, you guys should be further along than you are. You ought to be teachers by now. But you need somebody to go with you over the kind of the basics here. And he uses this analogy that I think we can all identify with. He says, you're, you're still... You're still drinking milk, and you, you don't have teeth yet. You can't chew food. And then he goes on to say that everyone's skilled, everyone that's grown up, everyone that can kind of handle the truth of God, the word of righteousness, is, is, is somebody that can chew on it. And, and you're not like that. You're a child. In verse 14, he says, basically, look, you're, you're, you're immature, not because you, he's not saying that I need everybody to be a theologian or a Bible expert, but he's basically saying that, that spiritual maturity is, is, is this mark of being able to know God and then to apply what you know about God in your life. So verse 14, he says that for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he, he's saying you've grown to this point where you don't need the supervision maybe of an apostle or a leader all the time sort of holding your hand, that you have grown into a sense where you understand who God is and now you can engage in this world and you can live as a light for the gospel by distinguishing between good and evil and walking in the way that is good. So the end of chapter 5 is, is this, again, it's this scold for these people that are still in spiritual infancy. And then the first three verses of chapter 6, he then positively says, he's exhorting them. He's saying, okay, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, he's not saying forget about all the basics, but he's saying then go on, go on to maturity. 
And here in, in the second half of verse 1 and 2, there's, a, there's an interesting grouping of phrases. And it's maybe a little bit difficult for us to apply. But he says, he says here, let's, let's not lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. I think what he's doing there, remember the context. He's speaking to first century Jews who were, were living by the law, but now they're living by, by the one that the law points to, which is Christ. And he, so he's saying he's wanting to... He's wanting to distinguish between salvation by faith or salvation by works. And so this essence of what it means to be a new covenant believer, a new covenant person of God, is to, to not bring dead works to God and think that we will be commended by that, but to have faith in Jesus. And so he's saying we, we, we should be past, we should, not that we move past the gospel, but that we should be, this should be ingrained, this should be a foundation for you, not something that you need to go over again and again. And then in verse 2, he says instructions about washing and the laying on of hands. What's going on there? I think that's probably a reference to the distinction between Old Testament rites of purification and washing and the New Testament rite of baptism. He's, he's saying that the difference between the two, you should understand the difference between the law and the gospel, the laying on of hands, the receiving of the Spirit into your life, the resurrection of the dead. You should know the implications of what it means to be trusting in Christ, that you are not just living for these 80 years, but that you will be resurrected and glorified with Him forever, and that we will stand before the Lord. In fact, the whole world will stand before the Lord in judgment. And whether or not you are in Christ or out of Christ means everything. And so he's, he's just basically going over some fundamentals of the faith. And notice in verse 1, he says, let us, let us move beyond. Let's use these as a, as a foundation and let's deepen our Christ-likeness. Let's go on into growing in fruitfulness in the Lord. So what's the point of the passage? I think we can just summarize the point of these seven verses where the preacher of Hebrews is just basically saying, come on. Grow up. You should be further along. Now, on some level, this applies to all of us. Even if you are a mature Christian, even if you are very fruitful in your and you're very discipled and you're very, very Christ-like in your way, none of us, I hope we can all agree that none of us are where we think we ought to be with the Lord. So whether or not this, this passage stings you, or whether it just gently prods you, all of us can hear from this passage that we need to go on to maturity. So that leads us to the second question. What is spiritual maturity? What is, what is this idea of going on to maturity? And we can just think of maturity as just this uh, synonym for Christ-likeness. So I have five thoughts here that I want to work through real quickly. Th this is not something that I stole off the Internet. and I don't steal anything off the Internet. Uh, I, I, I just look at the text. I read a lot of smart people that have died mostly. Some are still alive that write commentaries. And I just try and think, Lord, what do you have for our people in this text. And so these five thoughts, uh, if they're not that spectacular, then I own it. But I think these are five things that are not an exclusive list, but in some way round out this picture of what it means to be mature in Christ, to live before the face of God. Let's remember the mission, Coram Deo, that this text is encouraging us to live Godward lives. So what is spiritual maturity? Well, first, I think it's obvious, it probably pops in most of our minds when we think about 
spiritual maturity is scriptural knowledge. We need to know the scriptures. Certainly, growing up in Christ involves knowing the word. I think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, for example, where he says, don't be, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I think implicit in that is, is, is scripture. I think about what he says to uh, Timothy. This is a famous, beautiful verse. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15, 16 and 17. He says that these, these scriptures, that they're able to make you wise for salvation. And remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at Hebrews chapter 4 about how the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The, the, the Scriptures, 2 Timothy 3, are able to make you wise for salvation. They're divinely inspired. They're breathed out by God. And they're profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's just another phrase for spiritual maturity. So certainly, spiritual maturity, I think, begins with understanding who God is as he has revealed himself in his word. But I want to say this. I want to say this about Bible knowledge is that it's not the whole picture. Spiritual maturity is not merely Bible knowledge. In fact... Sometimes, if spiritual maturity or growth in Christ is, is exclusively seen as merely scriptural knowledge, it can actually have an adverse effect on somebody. It, it, can, it can be a kind of knowledge, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that puffs up. Or think of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They're an example of people that knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, but they, they missed it. In fact, Jesus scolds them in John chapter 5. He says that you come to the Scriptures thinking that in them you might find eternal life, but you're missing the point, which is me. And so scriptural knowledge is, is, is important. But I just say this, and, and let me just offer this subtle, gentle critique of sometimes the way we do sort of Bible study in, in our culture. I love the Bible. I hope you understand that. We're, we're a church that wants to build our lives on the Word of God and build our church on the Word of God. We sing the Word of God. We preach the Word of God. We pray the Word of God. We read the Word of God. But there can be a kind of way of almost making too much of accumulating Bible knowledge if there's not this sense that it's moving us somewhere. Does that make sense? Please don't email me and tell me that I don't like Christians to study the Bible. I think we should all study the Bible. But there can be a kind of way where Bible knowledge just becomes a kind of end unto itself. Please don't be the type of Christian that just keeps running off to Bible study after Bible study and it never really does anything in your heart. That's not good for your soul. So spiritual maturity clearly is scriptural knowledge, but it's not just that. It's also, secondly, it's the producing of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. That's what the Bible should do. And the Bible confronts us and it molds us and it transforms us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 22, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And I think about that. I think much has been made of this. I don't know if this, this is really a legitimate point to make, but I think it preaches pretty good, so I'm going to use it here. 
is the fruit. Notice the fruit is singular. So the fruit of the Spirit isn't, isn't like a smorgasbord that we can choose from. Like, well, I got, you know, I got some faithfulness, but I don't have a lot of patience and kindness. Or I've got some self-control, but I don't need a lot of gentleness. It's all part of the same fruit. It all goes together. This Bible knowledge then should produce this fruit in us, that spiritual maturity. What, what good, in fact? Think about this. Here's a question. What good is Bible knowledge if it doesn't produce these characteristics in us? Friends, let's not just read this verse and let it be the, a point in a sermon application, but I want to read this verse and I want to examine my own life. I want this to be, this is part of the Word of God that is now the sword that is used against my own heart to cut and open up my own heart and leave me accountable before the Lord. Friends, how are you doing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? How are you doing in that? Spiritual maturity is the, the pursuit, the praying for, the grabbing a hold of, the cultivating of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Thirdly, it's the mortification. Here's another fancy word. It's the mortification of sin. So it's not just Bible knowledge. It's not just trying to have these wonderful characteristics, but it's this active war in the life of a Christian. Mortification is a word that, that means to, to kill. If you're a Spanish speaker, morir is to, to die. It's to, to die to yourself. It's this Latin word to, to die. You die to yourself. Here's this wonderful description of the Christian life in Colossians chapter 3. Let me start reading in verse 1. I love this passage because this passage calls us to this mortification, this daily taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, against ourselves to, to fight sin that remains in us. And it's this clear description that in one sense, we're seated with Christ, we're with Him forever, but yet we're still dealing with the vestiges of our old self. Listen to what he says, Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. This is past tense. This is true if, you, if you're a Christian. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. And if that's how Colossians ended, that would be wonderful. It basically is this triumphant description of the Christian life that you've died that on the cross the sin that you were guilty of Jesus died for you and you've been united to Christ by faith that everything that he did in his death the, the sin bearing death of Jesus is your death his death accounted to you he took your sin he removed it and now you've been raised with Christ and all of his victory in his resurrection getting up from the tomb all of the benefits that are now yours in Christ and now you're hidden with come on this is the description Colossians 3 you are hidden with Christ in God that's a victorious statement and we look forward to verse 4 when Christ who is your life appears this future time when he returns, then you will also appear with him in glory. Amen and amen. But then there's verse 5. 
back down into reality. These things are true of you, but now what do you still have to do? You have to put to death, therefore, what is earthly, implied in that, still earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. What I take from this text very briefly is that there's a difference between living in a sin, living in these things, and fighting against them as a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. And the call of the Christian, part of maturity, is to fight against these things. It's the mortification of sin. How are we doing with that? And friends, what good does it do if we come in here and we sing and we clap our hands and we look happy and we basically put on a pretty good Christian front, but Monday through Friday we're getting torn apart by disobedience and sin. It's terrible for your soul. Fourthly, it's, it's obeying and serving. So it's not just Bible knowledge. It's not just becoming a sweeter, joyful, more peaceful Christian. It's not just the activity of fighting against our sin, but it's getting outside of yourself and it's saying, Lord, use me for your glory. Use me in some way. The Christian life is is not merely about me because there can be a way that, that we can grow in Bible knowledge and we can produce these characteristics and we can fight our own sin but Christian maturity is more than just this, this sort of internal thing that's going on inside of you. This internal fight, this internal transformation is meant to push us outside of ourselves to obey God and serve Him and to be used by Him for His glory in the earth and in our community and in our lives and our families and our church. This is what James says, James 2, verse 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone he has, says he has faith but he does not have works. Can that faith save him? So what good is it if you know the Bible, you, you have all these tendencies and, you, and you're fighting sin, but it doesn't flow out of you is essentially what he's saying. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Verse 17, maybe the whole summation of the book of James in many ways. So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone. But that faith, if it's true saving faith, will be accompanied by a life of obedience and service to God. And that's part of spiritual maturity. Are, are you serving the Lord? Is the Lord using you in any practical way for the benefit of other believers or people around you? That's part of Christian maturity. And then fifthly and finally here, uh, just a, a picture of Christian maturity. What is it? It's, it's perseverance under pressure. And maybe, maybe that's the primary thing that the writer of Hebrews had in mind here when he's talking about, listen, you're infants. You're infants because what's going on in Rome in the first century in the context of this letter is that these early Christians were being persecuted socially by people around them and they were under a little pressure, and they were just very easily wilting to this pressure. And so part of the chide of the text is, listen, 
you're unskilled in the word of righteousness. You're unskilled in how to distinguish good from evil. Hold up. Know what decision to make in this social situation you're in. Persevere under pressure. This is what Jesus says in Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So there's a sense that Christian maturity then is put on display when life gets difficult. It's perseverance under pressure. So summary. Christian maturity is, in a sense, a combination of all these things. And if we had more time and, and more smart heads, smarter than me, thinking about this biblically, we could say more things about what it is to be spiritually mature. But these five things, I think, are at least a decent summary of what it means to be spiritually mature. Spiritual maturity is knowing, it's imaging, it's obeying, it's serving, and enduring in our triune God. A question for us before we get to this final question. How are you doing in these things? How are you doing in them? What's hindering you from living before the face of God? Now, here's one point of application before we move on to the final question and land this point. I don't think many of us in our context are necessarily dealing with the type of persecution, maybe some of us, the type of persecution that we faced in first century, these Christians faced in first century Rome. But I do think that unique to our time and situation is that we are more distracted maybe than any other generation in the history of the church. And the great challenge for us as we live before the face of God may not be the persecution of a hostile Roman Empire, although in many ways we, we seem to be headed more towards that than we ever have before. But it is the, it's the fear of man. It's this social virtue that we want. It's instead of living before the face of God, Christians maybe in our day, maybe some of us, are consumed with living before the face of man. So, so whether it's this pressure that we feel to project a particular image to the world around us on social media, or, or whether, and this even happens within the church, I think that sometimes strong voices, listen to me now, I, this is a pastoral point that's been, been on my mind for a long time, strong voices will raise up in the church. And I think sometimes we can live for the approval of man and sort of signal our fidelity to what we think is faithfulness. And we say, yeah, that's the right way to go. We're, we're living in increasingly hostile times. And so, yes, this particular message by this particular teacher or this particular group of Christians, whatever it is, this is the way to go. And we signal our faithfulness. We signal our righteousness. And we then huddle up with all the people that are agree with us on this. And we look down on other Christians who may disagree with us on secondary and third level matters. Friends, that is living before the face of man and not before the face of God. And we're all prone to, prone to this. Whether it's the first time a guy discovers 
Reformed theology and he's just this psychopathic, mean Calvinist? Or whether it's a guy that adopts a particular stance on culture and he thinks that every Christian that disagrees with him on masks or vaccines or anything political is all of a sudden woke. What is that, friends? It's living before the face of man. It's virtue signaling. It's saying, uh, everybody that agrees with me, we're all right, right? We're the faithful ones, right? Instead of living humbly before the face of God. I am not advocating that we don't have stances and strong stances. I am saying that I think as I look at my own life and the life of our culture in Christianity in America, we are amongst the most insecure people in the history of the church. And we beat each other up because we want to be in with a crowd that means something to us. Let's not live like that. Live before the face of God. We will stand. Friends, this text tells me as I read it, not just that we should grow up and know what we're talking about. Yes, on some level. But on a deeper level, this text is saying to us, live before God. There's going to come a day when all of these little things that we're so consumed with will not matter. Live before God, not before man. So finally, three thoughts quickly on how do we grow in spiritual maturity. Uh, these are not revolutionary. These will sound very familiar if you've been coming to Crosspoint for a long time. You know that uh, pretty much everything we do just ends on just remembering what God has done for us in Christ. So here's three thoughts. Clearly not an exhaustive list. How do we grow in spiritual maturity? Come on, you could say it with me. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Be when he says there in verse 6, verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, he doesn't mean by that, hey, okay, this, this, the ABCs of salvation, what Jesus has done in your life, that you should sort of have that down. Now you should go on to the more applicable stuff in life. That's not what he's saying. Because the rest of the Bible is filled with exhortations to remember the gospel, to remember who we are, to remember Jesus Christ, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Remember Jesus Christ. In fact, if you just look at, at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, there's this beautiful reminder of what Christ has done for us. He's our merciful high priest. And, and how, think about this, think about how the writer of Hebrews is wanting to encourage the Hebrew church in Rome, the Christian church in Rome, from drawing back and caving into the social pressure, not by some new message or some new sort of felt need or some sort of new sermon series. He reminds them of all that Christ has done for them and who he is. He's the merciful high priest. He's the one who became like you and bore your sin and laid it down on the cross. This is the gospel, friends. He laid his life down on the cross and he satisfied God's wrath for your sin and he removed it and he rose again in victory and now he's yours and you will trust in him. You are reconciled to him forever and nothing can separate you from his hands. That's what the writer of Hebrews is reminding the people, that's how you press on. That's how you hold on. That's how you grow. It's falling more in love with what Jesus has done for us day after day. Remember the gospel. And secondly, yeah, this is not, a, a, this is not a, an individual sport. We, we do this together. So give yourself, point number two, how do we grow in spiritual maturity? Exhortation number two, give yourself to unspectacular community. And I insert that word unspectacular 
intentionally because any good community, any true biblical community is on some level designed by God to be unspectacular, in fact, inconvenient at times. And that's called the local church. And God puts Christians who are called to remember the gospel and to grow in maturity, and he puts them together, and they get on each other's nerves, and they frustrate each other, and they they seem to sometimes hold each other back, but he puts them together for the purpose of causing them to get their eyes off of themselves so that they will be like Christ to each other and help each other grow. I think of that old... uh, Somebody gave me, I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, somebody gave me a bobblehead, I collect bobbleheads, and somebody had a, in this church, dear member of this church, made, had made, I don't think this person made, if if this person is a bobblehead maker, that's wonderful, I would love to know more about how they do this, but they sent off to some company that makes custom bobbleheads, and they made a bobblehead of this old Scottish preacher from the mid-1900s that I love, his name is William Still. And he has this wonderful quote. I won't read it to you, but you've, you've heard it before if you've been around for a while. He talks about how the, the mission of the church, the mission of the pastor, the mission of what it means to be a Christian in community is to get a bunch of, he calls us, odd bods. A bunch of odd bods to live together. A bunch of people who are kind of weird and who got problems and are sometimes hard to be around. And, and we're supposed to live together and part of God's design is that he puts all these people together that have no reason to be together other than Christ and that's a wonderful witness to the world because if a bunch of people everybody that's kind of middle class and of the same ethnic group in the same neighborhood they all hang together if they're together doing life together and calling themselves a church that may be wonderful good things can happen but there's nothing remarkable about that group of people to the world because they would be together anyway but when a bunch of people who, who are from different walks of life and different ethnicities and different economic spheres and, and different temperaments, people that are odd bods, how are these people together? Why are they together when they are together for no other reason than Christ? It becomes a particular witness to the world. And that's the local church. And God then puts Christians together with people who sometimes are difficult to be around like we all are. And he calls us to self-forgetfulness to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto one another so that we will forget about ourselves and prioritize one another. And that is good. That is the essence of Christian maturity. I think the Achilles heel of American Christianity is how preference dominated we are. We run around gathering up preferences. I want songs like I like them. I want preaching like I like them. I want children's ministry like I like them. I want Christian education like I like them. I want small groups that are easy to go through. I want no awkwardness. I want it easy. I want it on my schedule. I want everything, everything, everything. And what you end up doing is you end up building a collection of your own preferences and you never grow. So give yourself to unspectacular church sing loud even when you don't like the songs come early leave late look for people who you don't know and make them feel welcome serve in children's ministry and don't fuss about it assume the best of others look for someone to encourage 
Become the mayor of your little section of seats and ask people how you can pray for them. And then, this is a crazy thought, actually pray for them. Maybe right then and there, before or after the service. Refuse, absolutely refuse to speak ill or to gossip about other believers in your church, or really anyone for that matter. And don't idolize the church of your imagination, but actually give yourself to the actual church in front of you. This is what Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon, you ever heard of him? He, he was this Baptist preacher back in the mid-1800s. The man. Spurgeon called the church the dearest place on earth. Let me, let me just let me confess something to you guys. We've been a church for 18 years, and I have been the pastor of this church since we began. And I have gone through and still to some degree and in a little bit of a season of maybe it's a, maybe I'm a grandpa, maybe I'm 52, maybe I'm getting grumpy, I've got hair coming out of my ears, I just want people to be quiet and people to get off my lawn, turn the music down. You know, that's not this music, but just, you know, this music, guys, I, I, I come up to a stoplight and people are bound, boom, boom, just, I just... Just sound like the old night, Mr. Wilson and Dennis the Menace. But there have been times when my heart, over the past few years, has been a combination of a strange, mysterious mixture of disappointment in myself and even sometimes in the church. I admit that. And I think sometimes that bleeds, comes out in me. And for that, I repent. I'm sorry. But regardless, what Spurgeon says is still true. It's the dearest place on earth. And that... That disappointment, that discouragement, that frustration, I don't know, just maybe that tiredness. Here's a thought. I want, you to, I want you to see this. That's actually part of God's design for human relationships. Because enduring through it is how God fashions people. But when they hit the eject button and they run temporarily they go find something else that might satisfy them for a while, but eventually they're going to feel that way about that other group of people too. And what happens is people just bounce around from place to place. Pastors bounce around. This is the only church I will ever pastor. I don't know for how long, but this is the only church I will ever pastor. And I'm not saying that pastors shouldn't leave churches at times. There's time, whatever. That's fine. This is it. We just grow discontent and we bounce. But the discontent, friends, listen to this. Please hear my heart. It's part of God's design. He wants you to deal with that discontent and confess it and bring it to the Lord because everybody's probably on some level discontent with you too. 
it's a, everything's a two-way street. You realize that? You're not, the only, you're not the only person driving this car, right? You're in a relationship with other people who at times feel the same way about you. And so we hang in there. Yeah, there are good reasons to go from place to place. I'm not, I'm not putting some spiritual guilt on you. I'm just saying I want to craft an image of Christian endurance in your life. Spurgeon calls it the dearest place on earth. The local church. Thirdly, finally, I love this. Take heart that the Lord, the Lord is actually far more committed to your maturity than you ever dreamed. The Lord is far more committed. In fact, he, this is stunning. This is stunning. He guarantees your progress in the faith if you are a true child of God. He guarantees it. In fact, we'll get into this eventually here, maybe next week or whenever. Verse 9, after he scolds them, Hebrews 6, verse 9, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that accompany salvation. He, he, the writer of Hebrews, even in this scold of these people, he's saying, listen, listen, we're, we're going to go on to better things. The Lord is on your side. He's for you. He's not against you. Where do I get that from? Is that just a, a pep rally phrase? No, I get that from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I hear the snickers. I know we always end up in Romans chapter 8. Let me read to you. This, this, this verse, this passage is stunning in its comprehensiveness, is stunning in its guarantee. This may be the greatest promise in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let me back up. Verse 28. Let me back up to verse 28. I started in verse 29. This is the verse. This is the famous phrase that we all sort of grab a hold of. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And if we just read verse 28, it can be kind of just this, sort of this impersonal, nebulous, ambiguous promise that floats in the heavens. That, boy, just generally, somehow or another, everything's going to kind of work out in the end for Christians. But verse 29 gets more specific. For those whom he foreknew, he foreloved. He also predestined. In other words, before time, he determined something about your salvation. And he's not just talking about the end. He's talking about the process. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, the guarantee of the Christian is that on some level here in this life and ultimately forever, we will be conformed. That's spiritual maturity. We will be conformed to the image of of Jesus. That's where you're going. Those, it's, it's, it's going to happen. And then he, he crystallizes it in verse 30. And those whom he predestined in eternity past, he also called. In other words, when you were dead in your sins, he awakened you. He called you. He said, get up from the grave. And he gave you a new heart. And with that new heart, he gave you the gift of faith. And you placed that faith in Jesus. And you trusted in him. And what happened when you trusted in him? Those whom he called, he also justified. 
That means that all of your sin has been taken away. You've been declared innocent. And you've been not only declared innocent, but you've been declared righteous before God. Now, everything that was yours was on Jesus' shoulders, and he removed it. All the sin, all of the consequence, all of the punishment is gone. And now all of the righteousness, all of the goodness, all of the obedience, all of the perfection of Jesus is now credited to your account. And that's what the Bible means when it says you're justified. So you were predestined, you were called, you were awakened, you trusted in Jesus, you put your faith in him, and you were justified. And now listen to this last phrase, and those whom he justified, he also, past tense, guaranteed, no doubt about it, airtight, he glorifies. It's going to happen. Your maturity will happen. So you're swimming in a river that is taking you somewhere that God guarantees you will get. So let that be wind in your sails to read the Bible, to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, to fight sin, to obey and serve and persevere under pressure. Let's live before the face of God. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this text. May we be marked by people that go on to maturity, a process that never ends until we meet you face to face or Jesus comes again. Lord, help us hang in there. Help us hang in there. Help us fight sin. Help us be humble people. Help us love each other. Help us not live for the world, for the virtue of other people around us, but before your face, quorum Deo, before the face of God. For your glory and our good, I pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.